0: This is all the president's minutes and I'm your host Blake Howard. In fact, I'm the producer of all the one Heat minute productions. First and foremost, I just wanted to reach out with my empathy and solidarity for everyone in the United States of America, the African American community who once again are being forced to riot, to be heard in the face of overwhelming and brazen police brutality. When I conceived of this show, I thought that it would be a great landing zone for conversations about cinema about journalism, about history and about politics and where those things intersect. The show will go on. However, just some of the episodes that you're going to hear in the coming run of episodes have occurred before any of the events over the last week have unfolded. I once again want to wish my empathy and solidarity from Australia to my American brothers and sisters and to my dear friends and wish them safety in their protest, in their peaceful protests, And this is not unique to the United States. And any Australian who is listening has to have the morality and the fortitude to acknowledge that this lucky country that I feel guilty for continually saying that I'm lucky that I live in is built on the blood Of our own First Nations peoples and Indigenous Australians continue to suffer the same plight as African-American citizens in the United States. And whether it's by agenda or legitimate legal restrictions, Australian press continue to be suffocated. And on this show, we're going to talk about it. Thank you for supporting. Thank you for listening. Let's get into the show. We told you before that we are with CNN. If you're just tuning in, you are watching our correspondent, Omar Jimenez, being arrested by state police in Minnesota. We're not sure why our correspondent is being arrested. Hang on one
1: second, Allison. Let's listen into what these officers are saying. That is an American television reporter, Omar Jimenez, being led away by police officers. Uh, He clearly identified himself as a reporter. Uh, He was respectfully explaining to the state police that our CNN team was there and moving away as they would request. And then for some reason, he was just taken in to police custody live on television.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All The President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me for the 46th minute of Alan J. Pakula's 1976 masterpiece is a critic that I've admired for a really long time. What she doesn't know is that this is exactly one-third through the 138 minutes of this movie. So it's exciting. This is a milestone and a milestone to talk to her. She's a writer and critic for Hire, but I've been reading her stuff religiously on the website of the great one, Roger Ebert. So it's my distinct pleasure now to continue to build up a roster of some of the best critical voices in the world on this show and on One Heat Minute Productions just in general. And she's one of them. Monica Castillo, welcome to All The President's Minutes.
1: Thank you for having me. Making me blush over here. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, if we can only make each other blush in isolation, what else is? What else are all these useless (laughs) Skype meetings, Twitter meetings, and uh, sorry, live streams? No, it's a it's a pleasure to get to chat to you. Um, I, I wanted to ask, what is your relationship with this movie? Because for me, I part of my process when I'm talking to different folk for this show is some folk I'm like really targeted that. I know kind of what their take is, but some of the folk I want to talk to, like yourself, I don't have any idea of what your relationship is. So sometimes when I reach out, I'm just like, I really like your stuff. I hope that you have a take on this movie or I hope that you've got a relationship with it or I hope it's it's really resonated with you. And so regardless of whatever that is, what is your relationship with all the President's Men?
1: So it's interesting because I saw all the President's Men. I can't remember if it was in a classroom or a Saturday afternoon, but I remember sitting through it and watching it and thinking like, wow, this is really boring, but it's important and I'm not quite sure why, but like I knew that Watergate was a big deal and this is the story behind it, but then when I got more into journalism and I started appreciating more about the work of, you know, investigative journalists and how it's done and the shoe leather reporting and the cold calls, all, all that stuff, that's when it, it really clicked for me and I did a short stint at the Washington Post. Um, a few years back, and so actually, they've since moved from that building that uh, it's it's based on. But like the whole sense and like Ben Bradley quotes on the wall and things like that, like you get a sense of the history. Still, you're still very connected to some of the people that you know. Their faces are on you know <laughs> portraits and rooms and things like that. Like you don't forget that what they've done. So now now it's like it has it's taken on new meanings for me over my, the course of my life
0: god it's it's like you watch it in a classroom, and then you're working in the place, and it's written all over the walls. It's like I think that you know we make we make this movie kind of lionizes these guys in the context of America, but in in the context of the post um, itself as an entity, not the movie, not just the movie, but obviously the movie too. Um, it's like yeah. the, the the reputations are all over the place. What was it like? Were you was it the original newsroom when you walked in, or you walked into the new newsroom? Sorry, just to clarify. Yeah, the new
1: it was walked, the new, news yeah, the new uh, newsroom. Yeah, this was only a few few years ago, so they had already not, moved. Not
0: not big chunks of paper and filing cabinets and a ridiculous amount of smoking. It's all a very modern version of what we can see.
1: Oh yeah, no, they've done away with the smoking, unfortunately. <laughs> 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 no, and it's a different color scheme, and the lighting is different, and the the seating organization is a little bit more spread out. But it is well, it is also interesting too because I I did. Uh, I worked at the New York Times as well. So it's, it's a different newsroom culture inside, which I wasn't expecting, but that was also really interesting. Um, but, you know, the reporters there are just as competitive, just as, you know, they're always excited to talk about what they're working on. And, and I saw that in both newsrooms. And I and I love talking to everyone, not just at my desk. I really enjoyed talking to other people at other desks, finding out, you know, what was going on over on the business side what was going on over at science what was going on over at you know what are the new developing teams working on i had you know friends across the newsroom and then it was always exciting to kind of swap stories and talk to each other so that sort of collaborative newsroom environment that you see in the movie and how they you know talk to other reporters and things like that that's very much real um but it also like when they have to you know Sit by themselves and write the story, well, that's very real too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's the one thing that I think um, anyone who's written online before, like you've had so much of your time um, writing online and, and and myself too in the writing that I've done is you just yearn for that. I think in isolation, it's even more, it's like, you just yearn for like, God, it would be so fun if there was such a publication that you were all in that big room together, just like being able to shoot the shit, throw an idea off of someone. Am I like going crazy here? And just that organic, like, oh, that's it. But obviously still there's the solitary, like. I have to actually write this thing now. So just sit down and (laughs) write it and file it. There's nothing like a deadline to motivate you. And I think that uh, online, we're also lucky that there's not really, like there's a deadline, but there's not like a a print deadline, like at some of the publications you're talking about. Oh, no, yeah, those are, yeah. (laughs) Where there's something that needs to be printed, that is a different, it's a different animal. It's like you need to have the story now or it's not getting printed at all.
1: Or you're in real serious trouble. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yes. All, all that. <laughs> all that. We don't. Yeah. We don't quite. I, was, that. I guess
1: I was lucky that most of the stuff that I I've done for those outlets have mostly been uh, on the digital side, so I didn't have that much pressure. But there were still a few things that ended up in print, and that's always fun and exciting and also terrifying all yes. at once.
0: Yes you can literally cannot be changed. It's like, it's done now. It's out of my hands. Um, I think the, clo- that's
1: it. If there's a mistake, get stuck with it. It's,
0: that's, that's, <laughs> it. Oh
1: yeah. And in the movie, when there's a mistake made, <laughs> they have to deal with it.
0: Yes, absolutely. It's and and, that's what, I mean, it's unimagin- It's an unimaginably scary mode. I'm looking forward to who actually gets to tackle that minute head on and talk about what it's like. <laughs> but it's it's one of those admirable things of like, there's a digital retraction or an amendment. Yeah. It just doesn't a work. Correction. Doesn't a, work. A, corre- a correction. A <laughs> correction. I don't know. It doesn't quite hold the same sort of meaning as like literally people knocking on your door and going, okay, well, like you were my source on this story. What the hell? what the hell went wrong? Like how, 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 yeah. did, how did the time between us having a conversation about this turn into something that is so completely different?
1: Right. Yeah. And it's always, it's a reporter's worst nightmare for oh, yeah. a source to Back set you, you the wrong way or, like, oh, I didn't actually mean it that way or, you know, or any which way an interview can go. <laughs>
0: have you had experiences like that being in an interview? Like you're doing a lot of cultural, you do a lot of cultural writing over many publications, both digital online and obviously critical stuff. But have you ever had one of those? Because I think that that's probably the closest to pure reporting culture writers like yourself and, and like in a much smaller way. I'm not your good self, but in a much smaller way, me is like you get the quotes, you interview someone in a podcast, you're writing a piece or it's a new, it becomes a news item. It's like making sure that you've, Actually clarified what the heck that person means, and then if you print it, it's not good. It's like, oh god, what's what's going on here?
1: Yeah, um, nothing comes to mind right now, but um, I'm lucky in that because it is culture writing. Most of the people want to talk to me. Yes. Every time I watch this movie now, as a <laughs> as a reporter. I get filled with a bit of anxiety, like having to, you know, try to get people to talk to me who don't want to talk to me or who hate me outright. You know, that's a little, a little bit more intimidating than a press day where like, you know, a filmmaker who's excited to talk about their next project or, you know, an actor who's been working on this role for years is really excited to talk to you little, little less so when you're trying to investigate and potentially, you know, get point all the fingers up to the white house. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a there's another great there's another great scene um, in in another very you know significant political movie from America, um, Good Night and Good Luck, where Strathan David Strathan is playing um, Edward R. Murrow. and there's the difference you see there's like this massive tonal shift between when they're actually doing proper current affairs and then he's doing like a puff piece um, with Liberace, and he's like Lee, and oh. <laughs> you know, and it's just really beautiful <laughs> and sweet, and you're like. His, his posture's changed. He's relaxed. He's got this laissez-faire look on his face. It's like, this is easy. Uh, but this tenacity of like calling people endlessly and getting nowhere, like it, it is a it is an anxiety-inducing thing, especially how many times you have to call on those old rotary phones and get nothing. And that might've been days. Like it could have been days and days and days right. of that stuff.
1: Well, when they're looking through the filing card, and they're like, well, this is not the information. Maybe they misplaced the card. Maybe someone took the card. Oh, crushing.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, you, you they've had to take like hours to go to the library mm-hmm. all day. So you get back to your editor and like, how far did you get in the story today? Oh, I went for this lead. What happened? I searched yeah. 5,000 cards <laughs> and it wasn't there. <laughs> and it wasn't there. And that is extreme. That's also not time that we... Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's not time we get back. No, that
1: is... There's, you No, know, there's no, that's not the timeline that we work with in digital now. No. Like that's, this also just looks so luxurious. Like they, they had time to look through cars. There's so many stories that I wish I could build up more. Yes. and I mean, maybe as a reporter, you always want to do more, add more, keep changing, keep fixing copy. But the actual act of continuing to report out a story, uh, we don't always have that time. We have to finish and move on to the next story.
0: Yes. Because you've got that, you know, X amount of, you know, uh, even in Oz, um, at still the sort of big newspaper publications that have any kind of cultural desk, there's like, it, it may not be inches as it was in the classical sense, but it's usually X amount of stories. Like if you're doing entertainment coverage in any way, you know, it's like, okay, we want X amount of stories today. And so you might have one that is your meaty big story, but then you've still got six other small stories that you've got to file on any given day. And it's like, oh crap, I've got to file all these stories now. And if I, I'm not going to have hours to luxuriate or days maybe to luxuriate in those interviews. I think that's the only thing that we've got even close is like those big profile pieces that are still, that still come out every now and then there might be like a GQ or it might be a, mm-hmm. a New Yorker, but they're so like, they're so rare. They, they just don't seem to pop up nearly as much as they used to. Yeah. I've noticed that
1: too, but I also really like those. Yeah. And, and I'm jealous as a, as a reporter, I've never had one of those chances uh, where you you know sit and work with someone and talk to someone for over days
0: yeah Monica, you, that need, seems you, you need one of those you need one of those r- like tom hiddleston and uh you know the, yeah. the you know ones <laughs> where he talks about taylor Happy. swift you know you need one of those that was like famously great yeah. that was fun to, that's a fun read those ones are they're always really fascinating like the time that you get with people in those you're like is this yeah is this a real window into this person or is it is it like, have they just put is you on? Is it also on?
1: performative? Is, is it a performative right. thing?
0: Yeah, they're always great. They're always really good. Uh, we can, that, I mean, look, part of this podcast can be campaigning for you to get one of those. So we need to get one of those <laughs> for Monica. Take? Can we please get one of those? <laughs> who, who needs the big profile piece for you, Monica? Who's that person that you would like to hang around with for a few days and do one of those okay. enduring pieces?
1: Um, If I'm really kind of, there's multiple people that I would love to like chat with more than just the 20-15 minutes uh, that you usually get for yes. a piece. yeah there's some that I may, may even want to do like a book length kind <laughs> yeah. of just like set through each one of their films because I know they have stories and I know I've seen them talk about their movies and I'm I, I know they could fill a book without even trying so it's more just like the,
0: the planets need to align to make this happen. <laughs> yes. We'll, we'll let you announce that on your Patreon for <laughs> folks who follow. We'll talk about that <laughs> at the when end. That the, we'll f- follow that at the end of the show if we get any nice little tiny letter newsletter announcements. That would be a nice little blast to get out of there. That would be great. But yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I, I mean, look, I think by the very nature of this project and the projects that I find really fascinating is like scrutinizing something and giving it the air to breathe and the time. Um, you know, medium to medium is one of those massive challenges. Like, you know, I, yeah. I completely agree, you know, when you're talking about taking a filmmaker through chapters of a book, like some filmmakers, you know, and, and the person that immediately rattled around my mind, someone like a Guillermo del Toro of someone straight away mm. who is like the chattiest human being about his own films and super articulate, obviously Michael Mann, um, you know, is Kind of my favorite filmmaker, um, I can say pretty unabashedly. I think anyone who's listening would know that pretty much. I was
1: gonna say I didn't have this. You know this. Yeah, and
0: that's pretty, pretty, pretty lame for me to mention that now. Um, but someone like that, yeah. when you talk to them, you're like, this person thinks so deeply about their art. It just seems impossible. Like you couldn't have, you know, you have an hour with them, or you have a, a chunk of time with them. and You're like, if you just had a few days with them, it would just. It'd be transformative. You'd have so much content and they've clearly thought about it in that way. And people who work with them clearly are drawn to the way that they work like that. So yeah, you just always, there's always that. Well, speaking of anxiety and speaking of waiting all day and diverting all of your attention for a story and luxuriating in the time you have to pursue a story, let's take a trip to Florida or fake Florida as we have in all the presidents. Oh yeah. Um, and we're going (laughs) to, we're going to meet Mr. Dardis. And we're going to see Carl Bernstein harass him after he's just tricked his secretary to get out of the office so he can actually get in there in the office. And we're going to see a scene that is, I think, from the Nora Ephron-Carl Bernstein script of all the President's men because they also had a crack at it uh, in amongst William Goldman. So we've got some good uh, sort of um, trivia behind that as well. But let's, Monica and I, take a watch of this scene with you guys. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about
1: it. Are we not I've been waiting uh, out g- since this morning. Go ahead and finish your call. Wait outside, please, will you? No, no, Did- no, 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 no. I'm the reporter from the Washington Post. We talked on the telephone yesterday, and you told me to come on down here, and I'm here. Okay. Uh, yeah. Let, I got the press here. <laughs> I'm going to have to call you back. You know, if you didn't
0: want to see me, I don't know why the hell you didn't tell me when I was in Washington. I just wasted a whole goddamn day here. My paper's waiting for a story. You tell me yesterday, come on down here. You say I got a 9:30 appointment. I've been waiting out here the whole day.
1: Caught me on the worst day possible. Yeah. The man I work for has just started a reelection campaign. Now we're going to have to see each other tomorrow, okay? No, sir, I'm facing a deadline. My, my paper's saving space for I me. I just don't have a minute now. I'm We're sorry, but... have to you. find... Ah, Mr. Dardis, I'm really very sorry about this. Mr. I, Bernstein... I beg your pardon, ma'am, but this gentleman made the appointment with me specifically, and I think that the Washington Post deserves the same courtesy Thank as you. any of the people you got waiting out there, with all due respect. I'll buzz you in about five minutes. Lady takes good care of me. The fact is, we just can't go into it this evening.
0: Have you ever been made to watch only 1 minute of a movie before, Monica?
1: No, this is the first. <laughs> Usually I'm forced to watch more than 90. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, at least it is 2020 at after least. all. There's no uh the there's a really great author um and friend of mine uh, based in LA his name's Jordan Harper. He's a a writer and uh, a screenwriter and uh, of you know um a lot of television screenwriting and uh, teleplays and whatnot. And Jordan's like, if I ever create a film company, it's going to be called tight 90. That's it. It's just 90 minutes. That's all you've got yeah. to tell your story. It's like so many great movies that happen in under 90 minutes. We need to get back to that. We're so obsessed with like longer running times. I <laughs> said, I'm in, I said, I'm in for tight nineties. Oh
1: my God. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Ned Beatty as Dardis. God, he's like such a 70s staple. He's got such a wonderful face. I love this scene because Every journalist I've spoken to up to this point, and so it's exciting to hear you as someone who's worked across, you know, two of the biggest publications in the world and especially done a lot of critical writing for voices and whatnot. It's like the thing that all reporters say that you shouldn't do is say, I've got a deadline and this needs to happen right now because if you are trying to convince someone of like giving you more information that isn't like a politician or isn't someone who is in public office, like this guy... um, uh, sometimes that might, might scare them that you're just threatening them with a deadline. Whereas right. in, in this scene, Hoffman as Bernstein is like, that is his whole modus operandi in this scene. It's like, you invited me down here. You told me you had the story. I need the story. I've got a deadline. We're doing it and you're, 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 you're going to do it. And it's just that scattergun fast manic talking of his in that, like in the way that he out, outlays that it's a really fun little scene. And it has one of my favorite yeah. lines ever. Lady takes good care of Which me. Which one's that? Lady takes good care <laughs> of me. It's such a funny, <laughs> funny turn of phrase and he just says it's so, so it's, it's it is like a good throwaway line. It's such a good little throwaway line. It's great.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, he, uh, uh, Hoffman is kind of like a bull in a china shop. Yes. He charges in there and he demands respect. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I at, Four eleven could just waltz <laughs> into any office yeah. like that and demand an interview that way. But he did it, and he got the interview. I think that was always something that, like, I I'm always in awe of the dichotomy between Woodward and Bernstein because they're two different type of reporters. They're two different personalities, and that's down. They communicate that down from their clothes to you know, the way that they handle things in the news, relationships in the newsroom as well. And then you have this moment where he, you see Bernstein is the veteran reporter that he knows how to throw his weight around and he knows how to apply just the right amount of pressure to get that interview. Yes. Um, and what are, it is a little, he's a younger reporter. He's only been at the post for nine months or so that they mentioned. Um, so he's still, you know, Trying to feel his way around the newsroom, still trying to assert himself in certain ways, Uh, but he gets other sources, and he, you know, they complete each other in a very beautiful way. And this is just like a very wonderful little showboat moment (laughs)
0: for Bernstein. It is. It is. It is exactly that. And some people have talked about the lack of in this particular scene or in this entire sequence. Some people have talked about, oh, it's the least factually accurate moment of like that's been translated from the book you know there's a couple of things here Mm -hmm. they talk about which is that the whole secretary not allowing him into the office and things like that that was all played up and i'm like i think that that's a very fine piece of dramatic license that a secretary was giving them a little tiny bit of grief to allow hoffman a moment as bernstein to do exactly what you said which is like be a 411 person and go into an office and throw your weight around. And when you walk yeah. into, when when you walk into an office and Ned Beatty is the person that's tearing over you, you clearly know that this is two very short guys and they're just having <laughs> it's it's not like a Redford standing there or whatever but I think in you're so right it's like they're there he's got to throw his weight around he's got to be there and and at this time the post's reputation is growing as an inter as like, you know, not just a national, not just the metro paper, but like an international news entity. And so right. you can see him doing that. And and I suppose I hadn't thought of it in the way, but I think you put it in a really good way, which is he knows how much weight he needs to throw around with this guy. Because what's really yeah. fun about both actors performing as both reporters is they seem to be pretty good. And sometimes they're off, but it only happens sort of early in the film. But they seem to be pretty good at understanding who can take the the prodding. Does that make sense? Or do, mm-hmm. you know, you know, who can yeah, who yeah. Can, who can take that? This person needs a little bit more toughness, or this person needs a little bit of this. It just feels like that makes really a lot of sense to each of their individual approaches.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I, there's also there's a number of scenes where like Bernstein kind of. Uh, there's one scene in particular that I'm thinking on I'm blanking on the actress's name and her character, but he kind of approaches her with a very, like, friendly, cordial uh, sort of conversation and she she jokingly throws back at him, like, oh, my girlfriend's warned me about you. And the conversation yes. that they have, she still gets information out of her. That's the point of the actual conversation. And He's not trying to pick her up or anything. But the whole... Like, just knowing how to talk to people is yes. a skill. Yes. Um, and her, her, we have... The,
0: the actress's name is Penny Pizer, because I had the same blank oh, yeah, a little you. while ago. It's, <laughs> it's Penny Pizer. She plays Sharon Lyons, and she plays a secretary yeah. um, in the White House, and especially f- around Colson and Howard Hunt, and, uh, and they're on top of the Q building in Washington, a great outdoor scene with the planes flying overhead, yeah. and the power of Dustin Hoffman's flirtatiousness is extremely strong in that moment. It's extremely, extremely strong. Extremely
1: strong. <laughs> and that is not the energy that he uses to approach Ned Beatty. <laughs> <No. laughs>
0: but oh we could imagine, Monica, what that would be like if it was a flirtatious I don't approach. I
1: think it would have gone over well. <laughs> <laughs> no. Or
0: no. not as well. Not as well. Yeah. No. Funnier in memory, yeah. but not not as well. But no, it's um it's it's a really interesting it's it's, it's really hard because especially the entire duration of the minute that we're looking at, it's it has been one of those, I guess, frustrating sequences that happens over and over in this movie and they kind of become this addictive frustration where you they hit a roadblock and you kind of watch them push against the roadblock and sometimes there's a breakthrough and like what is about to happen in, in the upcoming piece of the scene and other times it's just exactly as we talked about just prior to the break was, you know, those moments where you search through 5,000 cards and there's nothing you're like, maybe someone took them, maybe they're gone, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really good because it's one of those scenes that becomes addictive on on repetition. Um, and just for folks who are listening, just that there is a little bit of law and uh, a revisionist history that goes around the script of all the president's men. So if you look at the final shooting script or the, you know, the final iteration from William Goldman, there are um, there are versions of the script that they don't quite match up. They don't sync perfectly with the film. And if you, unlike Monica and myself, who might be a little bit more familiar, um, it doesn't, if you look at the final draft of a script, that is very rarely what you see on the screen. There's always like a shooting script. There's amendments. There's usually line changes, you know, that that depend on the actor, depend on the director in that moment, maybe they improv line that's better. And so sometimes when you see a published script, it actually incorporates all of those things. Whereas in the, in the, in the final version of the script as they take it to be shot can be slightly different. But in this particular scene, Carl Bernstein and his then girlfriend Nora Ephron had a crack at the script. Um, and this scene was apparently stayed completely intact from that script uh, and moved straight from their version of it, like their ad- adaptation um, and went into Goldman's script. It's like the only scene that is, I guess, wholly, um, uh, not Goldman and Holdley; those two. And I've always thought of it as like exact, it, it kind of completely underpins and sinks in what, what you just said is like, this is the showboat scene of Bernstein. And it, it's the, the sort of centerpiece of his power in the middle of this movie. And it makes no surprises that someone who was seeing him at the time, maybe crafted that perfect scene to show off what his skill was as a tenacious reporter in the middle of a movie. Or that
1: like he crafted this. it himself. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I suppose we might give we, we, himself. We, we give, we give on the credit as the, oh, as the writer. In, in the, in the, in the, in the, but look, I, 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 I like that he basically dictated that that would be the scene. <laughs> this is the scene, honey. This is how I did it. This is it. This is great. You know, I was so fantastic in this moment. Um, this genre of films, paranoia, th- thrillers, really sort of emerged in the new Hollywood era or in American cinema around you know, the 1970s, I think it happened a little bit earlier. If you go to European cinema, there was, um, uh, you know, existentialist paranoia post-war stuff that happened closer to the end of World War Two, because I think people in Europe had had the war kind of rubbed in their faces in a, in a much more extreme way. So you can sort of trace some cinema back to then. But then it reemerges in the 90s in America as well. There's kind of like this corporate – the government was replaced with sort of corporate – Entities and and messing around. You get the Aaron Brokeviches and you get the insiders and you get those sorts of films. What is paranoia cinema a genre that you're into, or is it a journalism genre that you uh, you kind of are drawn to? Like when you're when you're thinking about movies like All the Presidents is, what's the what's the genre that you kind of um, have the biggest relationship with?
1: Hmm, that's a good question. I think the journalism genre is just now. Become a bit more ingrained in me, just because now I do have those experiences. I have talked to political reporters. I have had friends in the field, and I do have friends who are in the White House uh, press corps.
0: Oh my god! Yeah,
1: yeah, right, and, yeah. and then like there's feelings in that. You know, I yes. worry about them. I, I, you know, I'm always watching and rooting for them, and. You know uh it's, it's sometimes just, always intense some of those press conferences i can't watch them but i hope that i, I will wait for the highlights and I, I will see if my friends get a question in um but it's you know and whether they whether your friends yeah
0: i was gonna say mm-hmm? i was gonna say your friends absolutely would hit close to home i was just gonna say and and just checking in to see that your friend hasn't been drawn into some latest meme of of the president or one of his representatives saying oh, yeah. something outlandish based off of a question that they say, and then it turned into like a swarm of online stuff. That is, yeah, the proximity of that is crazy. Um, how and how, yeah, do, and I know, oh, how, how do you, uh, uh, how do you as a friend, because I know that, um, I know on a much smaller scale, if I've got friends who do like news segments or their are journos and they do good stuff, you sort of give them a text or a, or a tweet DM or your WhatsApp or whatever it is. And you sort of check in Or sometimes it's a phone call. Oh, that was really awesome. You should be so proud. That like worked really well. How How is stepping cautiously with friends who are in the White House press corps? Is it just like a, are you okay? Like is there sort of a stock standard <laughs> message that goes to them and says, hey, how oh, is it? Are you all right? How was today? How, do, how, how yeah. was that? Because um, it's not getting any easier usually, for those guys.
1: Oh, it's not. No. And actually, um, even before all of the coronavirus stuff started happening, I, I've been really interested in talking more about how members of the press are dealing with stress, especially yes. with being targeted um, by by trolls, by harassers. Uh, we're not really talking about how members of the press are being harassed on the job. Yeah. Uh, just by you know trying to trying to do their work, and now people are attacking them or threatening them. Um, I've heard stories of people getting of journalists getting their photos taken and having them posted on uh, websites targeting journalists. So it is a lot more scarier um, in those senses. Uh, yeah. No. There's. Uh, I think my for me, for to check-in, it tends to be little by little. Sometimes it's usually maybe when I just meet up with them at a yeah. convention or a conference because I usually end up going to a few journalist events in New York City. I mean, we have so many different groups that get together, um, and that's usually the time I'll, I'll ask, like, hey, how, how are things? <laughs> you doing all right? Yeah. And then usually, like when they they do a great piece, or I see that they've uh, they've asked a wonderful question, whatever it might be, I'm, I will retweet, I will support, I will, yeah. you know, give all, all give that, the share,
0: all that good stuff, yeah, get,
1: b- yeah, absolutely, b-
0: bumping them up when they when they get that profile, yeah, it just feels hard. It's it's one question that this whole project is, um, you know, this whole project continues to bring up is. And sometimes it's funny, like what would Nixon be like if he had Twitter? Uh, and oh. <laughs> it's fun. That's hours of that's hours of wondering for me in the last six months. Chaos. It's just absolute oh,
1: chaos.
0: Absolute <laughs> ludicrous. Especially towards the end, you just go, "Okay, <laughs> this could have been really fun." Uh, but but definitely around, you know, the there is the increased. Uh, I guess the increased scrutiny and focus on, especially the stakes of this story, uh, the increased focus on everything being so right and having multiple sources and knowing the stakes of what they're reporting, especially in these initiatives. and it still happens. You know, I've been really lucky to talk to yeah. lots of journalists, um, such as yourself, that have, have been on here, whether it's culture journalists or real, you know, you know, quote unquote, like political journalists, business journalists. And the level of scrutiny doesn't really change in big publications. They're very intensive, and they want everything to be completely fact based. And I think that that's one of the whole yeah. contemporary fallacies that's been drummed up by you know propagandistic rants from people in 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 the public eye like everything's non-fact based and everything's an attack it's like no these people are like researching and they have editors who check what they're doing and if they don't like the tone they make them change it um and in big publications right. that's what it is um but i think well, but i think also about the anonymity so to speak of these guys being able to just be junior journalists i guess you would call them junior in the overarching hierarchy of the paper who can go out and ask questions. And even though their names start to become aware of like, you imagine that now they would be targeted directly before long before, not just from like a bad social media post, but like, you you know, a conflicting if Fox news is around when those guys are reporting on Watergate, like can like, can, can you imagine their names and their faces being on the news and them becoming part of the story long before. Long before it happened, if you if you know what I mean.
1: Oh, absolutely! And the moment where they they get the story not so, when they kind of mess it up or they they don't get it as tight, uh, and everyone you know jumps on that, then you know that becomes its own sort of media circus. That's certainly a moment where you know the whole outlet might have been discredited. I I do think about that a lot, and it's funny too. Rewatching this movie, I thought about that in particular scene. And any time that there's so much as a a solid question asked of the current administration, how it automatically becomes like, that's a nasty question or some sort of different deflection technique. Uh, And um, I immediately thought of all of that. All of those thoughts came rushing back when I was seeing those scenes and had, (laughs) you know, the multiple different denials all all down the line. Like, oh, gosh. Yep.
0: And the beautiful...
1: (laughs) <laughs> and the beautiful
0: non-denial denials as well, where it's just like, that's nasty. Right. Where they're just not even answer. you know, that's nasty. Right. They're not even answer. it's not even an nope. answer. It's just a comment on what the question was. And you're like, um, that's actually the refreshing thing. And it kind of sometimes goes past the They not-
1: expect the reporters too, because they do make some comments about Ben Bradley.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um and but there's what's refreshing in in all the presidents is a couple of times where you catch the guys watching a television segment and one of the people that's interviewing a political party and it's going, Well, this is reported in the post. And there's a moment where they're, you know, they're asking a question and the political They're following the political line. And she goes, no, you didn't answer my question. But I asked, (laughs) did you know about what the Post reported? And then he's, no, I did not. And you're like, oh, isn't that nice? And like a journalist just had like, you know, allowed the airtime to pursue a question and rigorously Mm. follow it up and not get cut off and not get dissuaded. It's like, no, you're you're, you're here to answer my question. That's the whole point. If you Mm want to say something, we're going to respond to it. I'm going to make you try and be accountable for the answer. This scene is a mm-hmm. this this scene is like a pretty uh pretty bright, pretty sunny, um uh, in his office, uh, sort of an exchange that is not like necessarily like the most formally blow, you know, blowing you away scene in this movie. I know that you as a culture writer have talked like about, you know, great formal technicians and filmmakers whose craft is just is actually the elevating thing it's not necessarily the content of their work but it's just the craftsmanship you know have you uh, have you got like a, uh, a have you got like a past with alan J. pakula do you like his films are you fond of what he does or gordon willis or those craftsmen who are like bringing this movie when you're watching it what's your experience with just the pure tech like the technical craft of what's happening um, in in both this minute, but more broadly, probably better to help you enunciate that in in the whole of all the presidents' men.
1: I need to continue on my Alan Pakula kick because I finally got around to Kloot, uh within the past year Great. and really enjoyed that movie. And now, now I want to complete, you know, the paranoia trilogy. Um, Surprisingly enough, I'm a big Warren Beatty fan, but I've not gotten around to the Parallax View. And uh, it's just like I, I got to do this. I, it. It's time.
0: You got it. And if, <laughs> I think you've got Criterion. If you've I got the Criterion too, yeah. Channel, you got to jump straight on that. It's the, I think it's on Criterion Channel. I know clue is, but yeah, the, I think they had the whole the whole trilogy kicking around there Clued, for a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah Parallax yeah. is wonderful. I,
1: I'll definitely check it out. Uh, like Gordon Willis, certainly he was like one of the first uh, cinematographers whose name. I learned. Uh, way back before I even knew I wanted to be a film critic, I just knew like, I liked the look of a lot of his movies, and a lot of the movies I happened to like also had him as a cinematographer. But this is so interesting, because it's so not a Gordon Willis-looking scene, no. it's, like you mentioned, very sunny, um, and I, it, when I watched it, I kept thinking, like, they're trying to make this seem like Florida. So they have a huge, like, Florida ceiling windows that's very bright, letting a lot of natural light in. Uh, but I noticed watching it and I was just watching it on my laptop, not like any big screen or, you know, fancy restoration or anything, uh, just whatever was on Amazon. Um, uh, I noticed that they were hills in the background Yes. and I'm originally from Florida. There's no hills in there anywhere no in our hills. state. <laughs> there, is, there is no hills. And then that's when I was like, oh, that's right. They're filming this in Burbank. It's, it's. <laughs>
0: This is Florida, as uh, this is Florida via Burbank, just like. But, yeah. but unfortunately, you know, fortunately, the budget is clearly on bringing the entire Washington Post newsroom into a Burbank <laughs> bunker right. on the on the Warner Lot. Um, yeah, it's one of those things where like, uh, great great craftsmanship in the 70s when it's on 35 millimeter print on a big screen stretched out does not do wonders for you when you get a digital transfer on high definition anything like it it's one of those things that kind of goes ah well yeah this is not florida there's no hills
1: now maybe no hills
0: there's no hills the palm
1: trees are a nice touch yeah
0: the palm the palm trees are funny because i look at them i I had the same response. I never noticed the hills. I'm actually going to go back in this scene and go and find them and see where they are because that's hilarious. Oh, no, okay. uh, so I'm glad I, I noticed I, that I, for you. I, it's always great to pick up new stuff. Um, but the, the palm tree bit cracks me up because I just imagine like someone in production, okay, we need to go out and you need to just surround this phone box that's probably on the Warner lot with palm trees because yeah. that, of course, means that we're wow. in Florida.
1: Well, and I don't know because California does have palm trees around yes. and people planted those. So they could actually already have been on the lot. Maybe they were just <laughs> ordered a bit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's also the palm tree insignia also like goes into the, uh, the Dade County police sheriff or yes. uh, police crews. They, they have that on their badge and they have it on their, you know, the county logo behind the secretary. Like, they really tried to, you know, sell the illusion so, that this was State County, Miami.
0: For, for, for just a minute. And look, when you're shooting indoors, you know the yeah. washington post newsroom was scary it was scary to bradley it was scary to woodward and Bernstein who were cult- consulting on set and 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 around going god like you guys did everything the the waste in the waste paper baskets a ship from the washington post like they were that obsessive but you can't you can't do everything but yeah i am it's really funny that you say you had a relationship with Gordon wills cuz i'm i'm the same like long before i long before i knew really about cinematographers just in general i like could could say you know, five or six movies off the top of my head that I love the look of and they were all him. And so then you go, hold on. Yeah. What is this? Hold on. that that does That's not right. And then you go back and- I go, got
1: to meet Gordon Willis. You did? He was at a- Yeah, he was at a screening at the Harvard Film Archive. And this must have been, gosh, it was before I even started writing about film. Uh, but they were had, maybe, I can't remember if it- I think it was just a tribute to Gordon Willis and they had a screening of Manhattan, and it was a print. And I went with a friend, and we went to see it, and they had a, a wonderful Q&A with him afterwards. And he was there in the lobby, and I just went to introduce myself. And it was super exciting to just, you know, get to tell someone like Gordon Willis, like, I'm a fan of your work. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I'm sure a million people have uh, done it, well... you know, it's always it's still kind of cool to be able to fan out over someone's work like that.
0: Yeah, like a practitioner like him too, because I think for for the yeah. l- for, for a stack of cinematographers, they kind of go stylistically unnoticed, and you get the big names, you get the deacons, and you you know you get the the Willis's, and you're like, oh, they're they're the guys or the chivos um, uh, that are around mm-hmm. there. You know they 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 sort of they sort of pop up uh, now and then. It feels like like one every decade that is like the guy, um, but oh, that yeah. would have been amazing. And what did uh? did he have anything to say in that uh, uh, Q&A about all the President's Men or about his career, about his approach? Did he have anything to talk more generally about, like especially even Alan Pakula because they had such a an amazing relationship?
1: Unfortunately, I only went to the Manhattan screening, so most of the questions oh, were geared towards Allen. that movie. Yeah. yeah, but it was really interesting because the – and I'm blanking on the, the gentleman who did the um, actual questions, but he, you know – was trying to do this very nice, very Harvard academic approach to cinema that's very flowery language, long paragraphs, <laughs> worth of questions, and Gordon Willis was very much a straight shooter, you know, he maybe had like three to four sentences top per answer, <laughs> and but he got to the point, and he told you what he was thinking, a lot of it just, it happened to be that way, and he decided to shoot it this way, and he, he just was so decisive that he just knew this was going to happen. So I think the big question um, that I remember was uh, a long kind of drawn out like, okay, so the bridge scene in Manhattan is such a big famous one. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to shoot it from this angle? Why did you decide to do all this stuff? Was this, you know, something storyboard, uh, you know, all this other like possible answers. And then he was just, he just answered very matter of factly that uh, they had asked the city of New York to leave the lights on a little longer. And then one side of the bridge had lights, and the other side of the bridge did not. So then they decided to move it a little bit more to angle it, so it looked like you know both sides lit up. Yeah. the whole was lit. And they they shot it that way. It was an accident.
0: <laughs> it's and and it's like it's the same as the big Library of Congress scene. It was it's not in the script. The, like with the camera movement, it's not in the oh, script. Oh, was it? It's a it's a it's a peculiar willis decision of like how are we going to make this happen and then they only had like a couple of shots at it they just put like a pulley with an old school camera like very slow like a pulley and a, and a lever to to like to steady it as they went up like this sort of natural you know uh-huh. vertical and it's yeah, it's it's one of those things like I, I think that um but like you said there's such a decisiveness sometimes with those artists that they just look at it and they go i'm gonna i i know how to fix like they've just got a great eye anyway but they're like i know how to fix this and how to practically do it you see it a lot with really great candid photographers as well they just sort of find ways that they get themselves in position to make things perfect like that you know i think there's a great spectrum there's sometimes there's artisans who storyboard the living daylights out of things and you know you get lucky with certain artistic directors i think you know one of them i think is like ridley scott Uh, you know he famously like does these gorgeous storyboard sketches in car rides like to his set. Like he's like, I want to shoot it like this. And like comes, comes, you know, hand in glove with like things he's sketched that are like beautiful that could be in a comic book or something like that. They're just gorgeous. Whereas something like that, it's really cool to hear him just go, no, this is like how we made it work. It's how we made it work to tell the story. And it just so happens that he's like extremely visionary in his decisiveness of like this is how it has to work and he just happens to be a bit of a visionary but it doesn't ever seem like it's hard work for him.
1: Yeah. And I mean we could discuss about any number of movies where it's so obvious like yeah he just he saw things that people
0: didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean if (laughs) if you'd if you'd only if you'd only ever in my mind, and and you'll definitely see this in something like Parallax View because Parallax View has more of this, there's more overt paranoia cinema language, like dwarfing of people. And there's like real, there's a real red color theme in the film. And I think that you'll get a real kick out of it as a Gordon Willis fan. And anyone, if you haven't seen Parallax, it's just great because it is just much more, it's more anchored in like abstraction and things being ambivalent because obviously here you've got a factual text that they have to adhere to, to tell the story. And I think that was part of the purpose, but you know, Parallax, they get to go a bit off the wall and I, I love Badian. and he's great. He's really excellent. Um, But one thing I was going to say to you was that, if you'd only ever made Parallax View or only ever made The Godfather or only ever made Manhattan just as an individual thing, that would be like the, the jewel of the crown. But when you like yeah. make them all, <laughs> it's just like, some, yeah. it's like something else. It's something. Within
1: relatively short successes of each other. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. Like a, a bunch in a row makes them all. Absolutely incredible. What's your favorite part of this film? Oh. Uh
1: oh that's hard there's a number of really great scenes Um, but I think for me the part that I really like is the chance to see Woodward and Bernstein work together yes Uh, to actually see I'm sorry I gave
0: you a scene with just one of them I wish I'd known before
1: (laughs) no it's good but it was a really fun scene and I appreciated the Florida connection that's actually my home state um, so I
0: thought you did it on purpose. <laughs> uh, no, well, I'm but just going to cut I'm- that right out and say that I did on purpose because no one would ever notice. On no <laughs> one would ever notice as quickly. Then people will believe it too, because no one ever noticed as quickly as you, that there were hills in the background of that scene. And you're like, that is a hundred percent off Florida. <laughs> this taking me out of this scene completely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I never
1: actually saw hills or mountains <laughs>
0: until
1: I was shoulder. <laughs> I, I was a teenager probably before i saw the smokies
0: oh my god amazing
1: <laughs> yeah no but the chemistry between those two actors and the characters how they complement each other just in, in almost every facet i think i was geeking out about that before re it and just noticing like there's so many stains on dustin dustin hoffman's costume <laughs> like i almost <laughs> wanted to watch it just watching it because it's like there's there's coffee stains where there shouldn't be coffee stains. How does he have them so far up his sleeve? Someone cleaned this child, um, and then you have uh, third uh, Robert Redford. That's like my son when know, he eats,
0: it's like my son and daughter when they ate pasta. There's any time they oh, ate pasta, God. it's God. just like how did you get it? How did you get pasta in your hair? How how how? I don't understand. How uh, I've got a one and a, oh, nearly two year old now, and uh, nearly three and a half. So uh, the three oh, and a half year yeah. old, she's she's very good. Um, it's only sort of by by accident if she's not paying attention, she might scratch her head or something like that, and she'll get some. But the oh. the uh, she's better. The boy is a he's a he's a mess. He's, uh, he, yeah. he, he, he it's like a savage. He, 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 he can't be stopped. right now. So yeah, he, I mean, he would probably look like Dustin Hoffman in this movie after a meal. Um, I think of that, I think about his jacket all the time and just how many ash, like it's like a, it looks velvety, the jacket, like the texture of it. And yeah. always, you always see the ash, the cigarette like
1: corduroy, ash.
0: Corduroy, no? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Like corduroy or velvet or something. It's like that material that it's like absorbs ash all over his jacket. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's great.
1: There is one scene where uh, Bernstein, like, taps out his cigarette, and it's on the couch of their, the, the main editor of Ben Bradley's office, <laughs> and it's, it's Woodard who, like, brushes it off the couch. <laughs> it's like, what?
0: <laughs> this so, is- like,
1: it, it kind of, it's like, the two different personalities. The really uptight, clean one, it's the odd couple dynamic, like, it's just really fun to watch play out in a very serious drama.
0: Yeah, they they are definitely the odd couple. They work so well together. And it's also, you know, yeah. a, again, just little touches, they were just so intimately aware of each other's lines. They knew things that could interrupt each other and vamp and um I think that's what ma- that's what I marvel at in their performances is how different they are and then that chemistry and that whatever that alchemy is of them knowing each other well enough of exactly how to complement and stay contrasting. Like they're just contrasting each other and stay together in the scenes, be there and be organic, but also be so true to each other. I think it's really, it's pretty, pretty marvelous. Both of them together. Yeah. And such a good choice, right? Cause like Redford as a producer of the film has to choose someone who's an absolute powerhouse and to have the, it's really cool when you see actors, you know, there's so many stories and you would know so many of them both contemporary and sort of the great, stories in, in our history of cinema of like there's one great actor and they won't cast another big actor alongside them or in the modern times it's like if we're getting into a fight we have to have exactly the same amount of punches with each other um, just the ridiculousness that happens in modern times but it's so cool to be like no I'm going to get like the other like one of the biggest movie stars in the world and we're going to just play off each other and we're going to see how it goes and that that is just everything
1: yeah I actually just watched the ECM conversation in 2011 And just getting to revisit those stories and just what he was talking about in one segment, he was uh, talking about the moment about uh, Lion and Winter and how he was, how both he and Catherine Hepburn were cast. And she had kind of made a joke slash serious call to make the movie and she wanted to make the movie with him. And he said that he wasn't, he didn't think he was quite ready. He was still too young. Like this is a more experienced each actor for that role for I do believe it's Richard the one of the Richards uh, <laughs> I can't remember now That's I saw at 9 o'clock this morning um, but she she said that do it now <laughs> I'm, I I can't remember exactly the line but she told him to do it now and he, he decided alright she said to do it now I'm going to do it now and then it's like one of the best performances again two powerhouses You know, matching on screen so incredibly and just makes for a riveting um, movie to watch.
0: Monica, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. And um, it's not only is it awesome to know that we've had a journalist that's worked in the Post and the Times and Ebert voices, um, such as yourself, but um, also who can spot hills in the background of uh, Burbank's fake Florida, <laughs> faster than any human being that has ever been on this show. So it's just a, a pure pleasure to chat to you and um, the best place for people to find you as they'll hear in the rap is Twitter at Um But look, just it's a treat talking to you and it's lovely to meet you and thank you so much for doing the show.
1: Thank you so much for having
0: me. Thank you so much for the incredible Monica Castillo at Movies. M-C-A-S-T-I-M-O-V-I-E-S you can find all the links to her great stuff at a variety of publications there and also links off to her Patreon which is patreon.com forward slash movies. thank you so much for being part of the show it's an honour to have you on Monica and folks thank you so much for listening uh, we're increasing the output of all the President's Minutes right now because this is the time to have conversations about not giving up about truth to power and uh, it feels like a responsibility if this show is to continue to have a dialogue, to have a robust dialogue about the intersections of journalism, of cinema, of history and of politics. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. We'll catch you another episode of All the President's Minutes very soon.